welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. In John 14.6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Our goal is to encourage everyone to grow in the Christian faith by anchoring themselves to the secure truth found in the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, New International Version. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, New International Version. Hi, I'm Victoria Kay. Welcome to Anchored by Truth, brought to you by Crystal Sea Books. I'm here today with R.D. Fierro, author and founder of Crystal Sea Books and part-time event librarian. He straightens up the books on the shelves when one falls over. Today on Anchored by Truth, we're going to finish up our brief series where we focused on the life and historicity of Jesus, and we're going to hear the final installment of our six-part epic Christmas poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. When we left off last time, our heroine bear Komari was staring down the demon lord. Right, R.D.? Well, Komari was doing more than just staring down the demon lord. She was actually preparing to sacrifice herself to save her friends from being destroyed by the demon lord and his horde. Now, just as a brief refresher, Golden Tree Komari's quest is all about a community of small koala bears that have settled down in the Arctic around the Golden Tree. They settled there many generations ago when a group of their ancestors set out to find the throne of their creator, which they called the Great White Bear. Their ancestors never found the Great White Bear, but they did come across the golden tree that created this idyllic valley in an otherwise frozen wilderness. The bears thought that they were safe there, but this Christmas season their town has been invaded by the demon lord and his associated minions who have come to destroy the tree. But the demon lord has told the bears that he would let them live if they would just surrender the tree and leave. But of course the bears wouldn't do that. And so Kamari has challenged the demon lord to fight her one-on-one in order to save the other bears in the town. Now when our last installment of the poem ended, the demon lord was swinging his sword toward Komari. So, it's time to find out what happens to Komari, her town, and the tree. Here's part six and the conclusion of Crystal Sea's Christmas epic poem, The Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. 
And in that time-held moment, the wind with wings took flight. Komari, caught in its blustering grip, was swept from the demon's sight. So quickly she fell because of the gust, the sword cleanly missed its prize. The hiss that followed, an empty sound as terror coursed demon eyes. Komari smiled a knowing smile as the demons cried out in fear. Their anger and pain a raging shout as they looked upon the bears. The wind was once again growing, blowing and gaining in strength. It swept round shocked demon and bear, measuring depth and breadth and length. Quickly the storm grew stronger and fiercely raged the wind. With power and might it surged as if the world must end. Snow was blown so thickly in wildly whipping air that all lost sight of each other, both demon and koala bear. The sky with white was thick and vision totally lost. The bears struggled to stand lest into the mayhem there tossed. For strength the bears joined paws, each other to serve and save. The demons knew not their other, but only their own lives craved. Finally, the great wind calmed. Slowly the snow swirled away. At last the bears could see they'd survived death's dark day. Slowly they counted their number. One by one they were found. But ultimately they discovered one small bear not around. But also missing from sight was the jeering demon lord. And not just him in fact, but all of the wretched horde. The village was swept as clean as ever it could have been. And all of the bears were there, but the guardian, their true friend. The bears began to grieve in silent agony. Komari had given her life for her fellows and the tree. But as they grieved, they turned toward the tree they called their own and noticed it glowing brightly, for over it a great star shone. A star much clearer and brighter than any they ever had seen. Clear and steady its brilliance, silver and gold its sheen. And as the bears looked on, some thought they might have heard a small, clear, and steady voice uttering windswept words. Oh, happy and blessed is our land, for we were never alone 
the goal our forebears sought is now truly my own. Grieve not, good friends, for my fate, for wondrous visions I see. Remember the words that we spoke while defending the precious tree. And as the bears kept looking, the great light began to rise. And as its brilliance faded, they beheld the starry skies. And far, far away, on the edge of a hill, two figures they spied walking. Just where, with murderous chill, the demon horde had come stalking. The figures moved ever so slowly, walking arm in arm. And even at this distance, reflected wondrous charm. They watched the figures climb and pause below the peak. Then one of the figures knelt at the other's golden feet. Then the figures ascended into the star-filled night. A bright glow the two surrounding with shimmering, glimmering light. One of the figures was small, the other of obvious might. One was a tiny koala, the other pure cleansing white. Wow, that's really an incredible ending. I'm wondering how you come up with the idea that a wild whirlwind could intervene in the combat at the last minute. Well, in this case, not too much of a secret. If you look at Second Kings chapter 2, we are told that the prophet Elijah was taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. When I do stories, I try to do them so that they'll find their inspiration and many of their details from some of the great Bible stories. And in fact, one of the most common questions I get about Kamari's quest is whether Kamari died. So I just refer them to 2 Kings, again, chapter 2, and encourage them to read that section and make their own decision. And that's a great lesson for why listeners should grab a copy of the entire poem for themselves. It would be a good starting point for a discussion in a family setting, or a church youth group, or even a homeschool study project. The story can help kids learn about poetry as a form of literature, and also see how their imagination can be an important tool in getting immersed in the Bible. Right. Actually, classically, some of the greatest poetry that has ever been written, like John Milton's Paradise Lost, was written using the Bible as its source of inspiration. Now, in our day and age, we've lost some of that awareness that some of the greatest literature of all time, including some of the greatest poetry, was written with the Bible as its inspiration, But I believe that we can reclaim some of that awareness by doing everything that we can by striving to honor the Lord in everything we do. So whenever I write something, fiction or nonfiction, I always try to find a source of inspiration and even the determination of a lot of the elements of the story by using correspondent elements that can be found in the Bible. So, what's on tap for today as we are right on Christmas's doorstep? Well, I thought our closeout topic for this series on Jesus, it would be fitting to talk about the reason for the season, Christ's birth. Traditionally, Christ's birth has been celebrated on December 25th for centuries. 
But unfortunately today, even that fact has become a source of either criticism or else an outright attack on the historicity of Jesus. For instance, some critics will claim that the celebration of Christmas was an adaptation of the Roman festival of Saturnalia and that as a result of it being an adaptation, it casts doubt on the historicity of Jesus. And it is true that the Roman celebration of the Roman god Saturn did occur around the same time on the Julian calendar. The celebration originally started on December 17th, but it was eventually expanded so that it lasted until December 23rd. And there are certain elements of the Roman celebration of Saturnalia that correspond to how we celebrate Christmas, including parties, giving gifts, and plenty of food and drink. Though it did differ markedly in certain ways, a lot of the time Saturnalia probably resembled Mardi Gras more than Christmas. And that's because the Roman god Saturn was the god of abundance and plenty, but he was also sort of thought of as a god of dissipation and dissolution. And it's fair to say that some of the elements of the Christian celebration of Christmas were influenced by Saturnalia. In the 4th century AD, Pope Julius, who was the Pope from AD 337 to AD 352, decided that Christ's birthday should be celebrated on 25 December, around the same time as the Saturnalia celebrations. Now, some commentators have speculated that part of the reason Pope Julius chose that day was because he was trying to create sort of a Christian alternative to Saturnalia. And another possibility may be that in 274 AD, the Roman Emperor Aurelian had declared 25 December as the birth date of Saul Invictus. And so Julius I may have thought that he could attract more converts to Christianity by allowing the people who were celebrating Saul Invictus to continue to celebrate Jesus' birthday on the same day. So I think it's fair to say that the way in which we celebrate Christmas might have been influenced, probably was influenced by Saturnalia, but that is quite a different thing from saying that just because the Roman god Saturn was a mythological figure or a fictional figure, that Jesus was also mythological or fictional. That would be a classic example of a non sequitur. Non sequitur, a conclusion that does not necessarily follow. In other words, it's a logical fallacy to conclude that just because the god Saturn was a myth, that Jesus must be a myth also. Just because there are some common elements in the way that the two different figures were or are celebrated. Exactly. But of course that does raise the question of whether Pope Julius picked December 25th just because that was a time when there were already pagan celebrations going on, or whether there were other reasons for selecting that day. And that is a great question. <laughs> I'm so glad you agree. So... Well, we need to start out by saying that the Bible does not tell us exactly when Jesus was born. As one scholar has put it, the early Christians were not so much concerned with the date of Christ's birth as the fact of his birth. But nevertheless, in our day and age, of course, many people are interested in, in fact, the date of Christ's birth. So for those people who would like to take an in-depth look at when Jesus was born, there's a great little book called Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Harold W. Honer that talks extensively about this particular question. What is the date of Christ's birth? And so much of what we're going to talk about now comes from his book. But there are other resources on the internet, and there are other books, of course, which discuss the question. 
Well, the first question we need to talk about is not the day that Jesus was born, but the year. I think most people generally think that Jesus was born in 1 A.D. Doesn't A.D. stand for Anno Domini, meaning the year of the Lord? Yes, it does. And that was the original intent when a Scythian monk named Dionysus originally prepared a calendar for use by the Western Church at the direction of Pope John I in 525 A.D. Now, before that time, before Dionysus did his work, the Alexandrian system of dating was being used in the Western Church. But the Alexandrian system of dating used as its base the reign of Diocletian, and Diocletian was one of the early persecutors of the Church. So Dionysus, who was preparing this calendar for use by the Western Church, did not want the reference date for the Church to be based on a persecutor of the Church. So Dionysius used the Julian system, which had been established by Julius Caesar, for the organization of the year. So that meant that Dionysius used a calendar where the year ran from January the 1st to December 31st. And Dionysius set the year 1 AD as January 1st of what was called 754 AUC, Anno Urbis Condite which meant from the founding of the city of Rome. At the time, Jesus was thought to have been born on December 25th, so Dionysus set up his calendar so that A.D. 1 would begin on January 1st of 754 A.U.C. Now, in thinking about calendars, you have to remember that in the calendar system that we use today, the calendar goes straight from 1 B.C. before Christ to 1 A.D. There is no zero year. But But subsequent scholarship has determined that Dionysus didn't get the translation right between the AUC system and the system that was based on Christ's birth year. As our scripture today from Matthew noted, King Herod was still alive when Jesus was born. Well, at the time Dionysius prepared his calendar, it was thought that Herod had died in 754 AUC but we now know that the latest possible date for Herod's death was actually 750 AUC, not 754 AUC. And again, AUC just refers to the date for the founding of the city of Rome. So that would mean Jesus was actually born four or five years earlier than previously thought. So he was born in 4 or 5 BC, not December 25th of 1 BC. Hmm, interesting. Yes, it is interesting. I find all these questions very interesting, primarily because they have to do with the central figure of my faith, who is Jesus Christ. But it's worth noting that scholars aren't even agreed on the fact that Jesus was born in either 4 B.C. or 5 B.C. Because? Because we have two scriptures that serve as more or less the outer boundaries for Jesus' birth. According to Matthew's scripture that we heard today, Jesus could not have been born later than Herod's death. But according to the scripture from Luke that we heard today, Jesus was born after a census that would have been taken by a Roman official named Quirinius. Now in Greek, Quirinius would have been known as Quirinius. Remember that in the scripture that we heard, Luke says that this was the first census that took place while Quirinius was a governor of Syria. So obviously, Jesus would have been born after the census that Luke is referring to when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. But one of the issues about this particular scripture is that there aren't any real clear records about when this census took place. 
The historian Josephus does not mention a census that took place during Herod's reign, but he does mention one that took place in about 6 or 7 AD. But Josephus does not mention apparently this earlier census that was taken by Quirinius. But notice that the scripture says that this was the first census, and so probably the census that Josephus mentions in 6 or 7 AD was a later census, second or third or whatever. So scholars are not unified on the date of the particular census that Luke is referring to. And this, in fact, is one of the more puzzling questions that still lingers around the birth of Jesus. So does Dr. Honer discuss the question in his book? He does. And actually, there is a wealth of discussion available on this particular topic from a lot of sources on the question of this first census of Quirinius. Here are a few things that we know for certain. First, the Romans were well known to take censuses throughout their empire to establish what we would call the basis for taxation. And it was common in the Roman Empire for them to take them about every 14 years. Second, the text from Luke that says that Quirinius was the governor of Syria does not actually use the normal word that would be used for a governor, legatus. It just actually uses a more generalized term for someone who was in charge or leading a particular effort. The third thing that we know for sure is that Quirinius was in the Mideast from 12 BC to 2 BC because he was successively suppressing rebellions that were taking place in modern-day Turkey. So apparently this fellow Quirinius was well known to be a successful military leader within the Roman Empire. So it would make sense that he was given charge of an important task of taking a census, even if it was done as an extra duty. Also, it makes sense that Augustus would want a census taken in the part of the empire because Herod had fallen out of favor with Augustus around 7 or 8 BC, and by then it was known that his health was failing and that his sons were quarreling over who would succeed him. Herod changed his will three times in the year before his death, each time naming a different son. Augustus knew about the changes and the quarrels because Herod had to get Augustus's permission before making the changes. Or executing one of his sons, which Herod also did, again with Augustus's knowledge and consent. So that helps show that Herod was the kind of king who would order the murder of all boys two years old and under, in and around Bethlehem, to get rid of a child the Magi had described as the king of the Jews. So it looks very much like Quirinius might have been in charge of a census sometime in the latter part of Herod's reign, around 5 BC. Herod died in 4 BC. But what about the specific day? Some people object to the December date because part of Luke that we didn't listen to today says that the shepherds were keeping watch on their flocks, which were out in the fields at night. It is generally known that the shepherds brought their sheep into enclosures from about November through March. So, the thinking is that if the sheep were out in the field, it couldn't have been December. And that's a reasonable observation, but it's not conclusive for a variety of reasons. First, it might just have been a mild winter, so there would have been far less reason to keep the sheep enclosed, and sheep in general are going to do better if they're allowed to feed out on an open type of pasture than if they're kept packed tightly together in some kind of an enclosure. Second, the text specifically says that the sheep were apparently in and around Bethlehem, as opposed to being out in their spring and summer feeding grounds, which would have been in the wilderness. So the fact that the sheep were relatively close to Bethlehem, which is a town that's not that far away from Jerusalem, 
makes it far more likely that the birth was in the winter. If the birth had been during the summertime, it's far less likely that the shepherds would have been close enough to Bethlehem so that when the angelic heralds appeared to him, they would have been able to get into Bethlehem to see the Christ child very quickly. Third, there are also Jewish texts that say that the sheep that were going to be used for the Passover celebration were supposed to be out in the field for at least 30 days before the celebration of Passover. Now, Passover could have been as early as February, so if the Passover that year was in February, 30 days earlier would again have been in either very early January or possibly even in late December. It's an interesting observation, and it's a reasonable observation to say, well, if the shepherds were out tending their sheep in the fields, that it must not have been that bad a winter night outside. But the fact that they were out in the field tending their sheep does not mean that they weren't out there during the winter time, specifically a time that could have been associated in either late December or early January. The bottom line is that, again, when you look at the details of history and the gospel accounts, it dispels completely the notion that even if there are superficial resemblances between the Christian celebration of Christmas and some pagan winter festivals, that somehow diminishes the historicity of Jesus as a person, or his birth in Bethlehem on a night over 2,000 years ago. Sounds like a great time for a prayer. Today, since we're so close to Christmas, Let's listen to a prayer about that special day. A Prayer for Christmas Day Wonderful Father, You are the Most High King who lives and reigns in unimaginable majesty and splendor. You superintend all creation and Your commands cannot be altered. You see the end from the beginning and are the only sure guide for Your children. Lord, today we celebrate the birth of the Christ child. Though he was born in the most humble of earthly circumstances, angelic heralds, the messengers of true sovereignty, announced his birth, thereby signifying his royal heritage and that this child would be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. By your command, Christ was called by many names and titles. Gabriel told Mary and Joseph, the child would be called Jesus, which means Jehovah is salvation. Through the prophet Isaiah, you proclaim the child would be called Emmanuel, meaning God is with us. The child would become the Christ, which means the anointed one. The baby would also be called the son of David because he would inherit the throne you had granted to the greatest king of Israel. When grown, the child would call himself the son of man hearkening back to Daniel's vision of the one who came on clouds of glory to rule and reign. By these names and others, all who looked upon the child and the man, all who know him today, understand that this child is nothing less than the divine Son of the living God. In a way we cannot fathom, Christ Jesus is both fully God and fully man, and because he is, He is fully able to save all those who put their trust in Him. Christ is God. The value of His sacrifice was therefore infinite. Christ is man. He can therefore represent all people who look to Him to redeem them from the desperate plight of sin. Though at His birth the shepherds saw Him in a manger, the truth was that at that moment the hosts of heaven still recognized their King. We glorify You, O Lord, 
for the manifest goodness that you gave to us. We fall down in worship and praise for so great a salvation, and we pray that his name and yours will be honored in our hearts and in hearts all over the world. We pray that you would help us to proclaim this glorious news, not only today, but every day. We pray that you would open hearts to receive the good news. Because Jesus is our Lord and Savior, we have the confidence to come before your throne and to pray in his grace-filled name. Amen. We'd like to remind our audience that a lot of our radio episodes are linked together in series of topics. So if they've missed any episodes, or if they just want to hear one again, all these episodes are available on your favorite podcast app. To find them, just search on Anchored by Truth by Crystal Sea Books. We hope you'll be with us next time. In honor of the Christmas season, our gift to our listeners will be an uninterrupted presentation of the entirety of the Golden Tree, Komari's Quest. We hope you'll take some time to encourage some friends to tune in also, or listen to the podcast version of this show. Also, we'd like to remind listeners that copies of the Golden Tree, Komari's Quest are available from our website or on Amazon. If you'd like to hear more, try out crystalseabooks.com, where we're not famous, but our boss is.